the brink of impact, created by Chelsea Lowe, Maggie Stoller, and Rachel Whaley to energize young people to build careers and social impact. This week on Episode 9, we interview Myra Kwaja, chat about conscious holiday shopping, and share our favorite resources with you. Every episode, we chat with someone starting their career in the social sector and share resources to help boost your career. Check out our website at www.brinkofimpact.com. Tell us what you think of this episode on Twitter at Brink of Impact. And join our email newsletter to get links to all the resources we share. On this week's episode, we are talking about uh, conscious holiday shopping. Everyone has gifts that they have to get around the holiday season for family and friends. And sometimes when we're shopping, we always want to be conscious consumers and think about the social impact of our gifts. So at the Brink of Impact, we wanted to share some places where we look for gifts, some uh, things to keep in mind while we're shopping. I want to start off by sharing two resources that I personally use when I am shopping for the holidays. The first one is the Social Enterprise Alliance's Holiday Gift Guide. Social Enterprise, Enterprise Alliance is a national organization, kind of a collective of social enterprises, and they put out a holiday, holiday gift guide each year that is basically a collection of all of their member organizations' products. So you can go on their website. They've sorted by different categories depending on the person that you're shopping for, and all of the products on the gift guide are um, of social impact, and they're contributing to some kind of workforce development, um, fighting climate change, along with a number of different other social issues. So that's the first resource I have. The second resource I have, pretty similar to Social Enterprise Alliance, it's called giftsforgood.com. Giftsforgood.com is an organization that curates premium gifts for companies and professionals that all support charitable causes. So if you go to their website, you can shop all the products they have. These products are customizable, so this is good if you are looking maybe for work to get, like, a bunch of coworkers different presents. Um, you can also shop by price and shop by cause, which is really interesting. So you can choose who you want the uh, dollars to go to. Perhaps it's children in need. Perhaps it's women at risk. Perhaps it's towards wildlife conservation. So those two sites are a really great way to start thinking about being a conscious consumer around the holiday season. I'm curious, Rachel and Chelsea, what um, the two of you think about when you approach holiday shopping with a conscious mind. Yeah, I also try to stay conscious of social impact, especially around this time of year when I'm doing a lot more shopping than I am at other times of year. So one resource that I also like to use is uncommongoods.com. And it's this really great online store that has a great social impact focus. It's a B Corp, which basically means it's a socially responsible business in a number of dimensions, has a big focus on environmental sustainability and just kind of a great array of products. And I've actually bought a number of gifts from here uh, for a variety of people that I know. And I've always been really happy with whatever I buy, and it's um, pretty affordable as well, a lot of affordable options, um, which is also kind of a great plus. Um, and then they, in addition to that, every time you make an order, you can choose one of their partner nonprofits, and they'll donate, I believe it's a dollar, to one of their partner nonprofits uh, when you make an order. So um, I feel pretty good about shopping there uh, for a number of reasons, and so would definitely recommend it if you're looking for some good social impact online shopping. And for me, I'm really inspired by my new job. 
Um, so we're working a lot with minority entrepreneurs and a lot of small businesses and a lot of women-owned businesses as well. So this holiday season, I'm really trying to buy as much as I can from Black women-owned businesses. And two that I'm really excited about right now for the women in my life and in my family are the Lip Bar, which is actually a Black-owned um, cosmetic company that is also vegan. So they do lipsticks, and they're all about health, um, but also it's keeping my money in my community. So that's one I'm really excited about. And the other is uh, actually a winter item that I think is something that's really great to have is a slap cap. cap. So it's um, a silk-lined cap, so it keeps your hair moisturized and protected all winter. So those are two things that I'm really excited about. And then another resource that I found really helpful is the In Her Shoes, their holiday gift guide from last year, but it shares 75 black women-owned brands to shop. So that's been another really great resource for me. But I'm really excited to know more about where everyone else is shopping. Yeah, I think there's so many great guides out there um, for shopping consciously. So if you are listening to the podcast and you want to share a place where you shop, a cause that you support while you're shopping, please share it with us. Um, share it with us on social media at Frank of Impact. We would love to hear from you and happy shopping. We have a special featured resource this week, packed with purpose. And we have a special guest to tell you about it. Hi, everyone. This is Liat Rothschild, founder and CEO of Packed with Purpose. To all of you Brink of Impact listeners, I'm here to share a little bit more about my corporate gifting company with a social mission. I founded Packed with Purpose just over a year ago in order to help companies and individuals send great gifts to their clients, their partners, and their friends that do good. We discover and source unique products from social enterprises all over the country and globally in order to create unique gifts that both wow recipients and that create an impact. So how does it work? We look for wonderful purveyors, we affectionately call them purposeful purveyors, who create products that look good, taste good, and do good. And then we put those together into unique gift bundles that companies or individuals can gift throughout the year and gift during conferences or meetings um, at the end of the year and then on an ongoing basis. We've got an array of purveyors that create products from brownies to toffee to caramel to granola to coffee, and then also a number of products including um, napkins, serving boards, lotions, really cool bottle openers. So you might be thinking, well, how does this actually create an impact? So I'll give you a few examples. We partner with a social enterprise based in Chicago called Rebuilding Exchange, and they prevent thousands of tons of otherwise good building material from going into landfills. And instead, they repurpose that wood and other materials into unique products. So for us, that comes in the form of really cool walnut and ash cutting boards, as well as wooden bottle openers or a custom honey dipper that we made that goes perfectly with our honey. That honey, for example, is made by another social enterprise that employs individuals that were formerly incarcerated, provides them with workforce development and job training skills so that they can get back on their feet, they can find full-time employment, and therefore reintegrate into society successfully. We've got purveyors based in Chicago, Detroit, 
California, Washington, D.C., and beyond. We're always looking for new purveyors. So if you know of any social enterprises or purpose-driven companies that are doing good, please let us know. You can go to our website, packedwithpurpose.gifts, to find more information about how our gifts do good, also to recommend purposeful purveyors, and to get inspired by the incredible organizations and companies across the U.S. and globally that are using their ingenuity and innovation to create wonderful products and also create an impact. down with my friend Myra Kwaja. Uh, Myra and I met when we were working at uh, the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. She was leading an awesome program called the Women in Public Service Program, which we should probably talk about at some point. Um, and I was just uh, working with the Civic Engagement Group uh, at the IOP. Uh, today she does really interesting work, and I'm so excited to chat with her, and also just to selfishly catch up with her. So welcome, Myra. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to see you. Um, so we were just about to dive in and talk about Murraysville, where you grew <laughs> up, and that for those that don't know, that's in Pennsylvania, outside of the Pittsburgh area. So mm-hmm. tell me about your childhood and what it was like to grow up in uh, western <laughs> Pennsylvania. Oh my God. What a way to start. Um, so Murraysville is a small suburb, um, about 10 miles outside of downtown Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. Or outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, um, uh, how to put this very bluntly, it is a Trump supporting, mostly white (laughs) suburb. And I went to the same school K through 12 and I loved my school um, in terms of my teachers. I had really great um, one-on-one attention and support, um, tons of extracurriculars. Um, but um, I was one of the only, like, Democrats, liberals growing up um, among, like, mostly Republicans. And that was, like... Mm, mostly the rough like parts of it I didn't really realize what my racial and gender confusion was um like just like what was going on until I got to college and had sort of the vocabulary to realize the things that were wrong with Murraysville and like Murraysville moms you know white moms the things that they may have said to me um how boys and girls, especially girls, um, acted around me. Um, and it's not even something that I really addressed with my friends back home in Murraysville, the, the few that I still am in touch with, just because I don't really feel like it's worth it. But that's what it's like growing up in Murraysville. <laughs> um, my parents still live there. I love my childhood home a lot. Um, I will be sad the day they sell it, but I go home like to Murraysville twice a year. Um, and I love Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh is not where I grew up. I grew up in Murraysville, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, so your parents were born in Pakistan. Yes. And when did they come to the U.S.? Um, my dad came to the U.S. in the 70s, and um, they got married in 1983. It was arranged marriage. And then my mom came over like a year later after they got married. And, and were they always in Murraysville? Uh, yeah, wow. always in Murraysville. <laughs> yeah, close by Monroeville, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is like a little bit closer to Pittsburgh, like yeah. one town over. Um, and uh, yeah, my dad actually came to the U.S. to study um, engineering. Um, he was the first in his family. I'm very proud. And um, yeah, 
So he came to Buffalo, New York, and then got a visa sponsorship from Westinghouse. Oh, nice. Yeah. So he's an engineer, and... And my mom's a doctor. The classic South Asian story. Wow. I am, yeah. So, okay, so tell me, you are in high school. Yeah. High school, Myra's figuring out where she wants to go to college, what she wants to study. Yeah. She's got parents that are... An, an engineer, engineer and a doctor. doctor. <laughs> so how did you uh, choose Chicago, and how did you decide what you wanted to study? Because you studied neither of those things. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, I actually am very lucky um, in that my parents were not um, ever like, you have to do medicine or you have to do science, which most of my peers growing up every weekend at the local mosque or masjid um, in Monroeville, which which my dad like designed and built um, with my family as soon as they like got to Monroeville, like in the late eighties, um, uh, the very big part of my childhood. The most of my peers growing up, their parents were like that, um, and. So my, my parents did make me participate in, like, science fairs growing up, and they made me, like, play sports. They wanted me to, like, be well-rounded and have a scientific mind, but they just they didn't make me study science and medicine. Um, I watched from a young age. I was the youngest in my family. My two older brothers did science in college. One was econ, which is, like, not science, but science, whatever, um, and the other comp science engineering, and... I knew I didn't want to do that. I always wanted to be a teacher, lawyer, journalist. And so I think they could see from all my math anxiety growing up that that wasn't going to be the thing. (laughs) They just wanted, by the time I was graduating high school, they were just like, we just want you to be like healthy and and successful (laughs) and what you do. So so I applied early action to UChicago because my brother did. Um, simply put, and I like, I followed a very similar path that my brothers did. I had like, I was like, okay, these are the colleges that they applied to. So I too will apply to those, you know? Um, I did not look at small liberal arts colleges. I could have, and I did not. Um, but I really, I thought like, okay, this is like artsy sort of, um, and I think once I got into UChicago, I was like, okay. I, like, have this thing. And I did apply other places, but UChicago was, like, the one. So So you ended up at UChicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was your major while you were there? Um, History. And I was originally intending, I think, to do, like, international studies. And then public policy was really the one that I, like, stuck with for a while. I think even when I graduated, a lot of my friends were like, oh, I thought you were public policy, <laughs> um, just because of all the prereqs. Yeah. But, um, but history, history, mostly because of Chicago. Yeah. I was in Chicago. I love the primary source, like, material everywhere. Yeah. Um, I took one class with Kathy Conzen um, called Hyde Park as a Historical Laboratory mm-hmm. and wrote a paper on the Blackstone Rangers and a church on 64th and Kimbark, and I loved it. And I was like, all right, well, this paper can't just be for an elective. (laughs) Yeah. I got to make it my whole major. Yeah. And um, I don't think I told my parents. And at that point, I don't think they cared. (laughs) I think they were they cared, they cared. But I, I learned that... I wonder if I had been the oldest, if they, that would have changed things. But 
I think they were mostly concerned by my like health. Um, it's not that I was unhealthy physically, but I was like having so much anxiety and depression, which if you know you Chicago and you know you Chicago students, that's like a, a thing. Yeah. Um, they were just like, okay, just please just do a thing, acquire a skill, which is also a problem at UChicago, <laughs> acquire an employable skill. And so I was like, I'm taking languages, don't worry, I'm taking French, I'm taking Arabic. And then I also really, this is part of the reason I really threw myself into the IOP, I was like, don't worry guys, I'm going to be employable. Yeah. And I also, I think I did that so much so to like ease this perceived anxiety I thought my parents have. Yeah. But they didn't really have it. When I told them about all the IOP stuff, they were like, okay, okay. They, I don't think they cared, actually, because yeah. they didn't understand it. Right. So really, it was my own anxiety. I don't think it was actually right. my parents' anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's paid off. Like, it's oh, been wonderful. Really? Um, I actually learned a lot, like, professionally, which cool. you understand. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. I can write other people's resumes for yeah. them. I can, like, There's a you lot know. of skills, I feel like, that you didn't realize that you picked up, but, like, yeah. reading, critical reading analysis yeah it was just part of the curriculum like no matter what your major was yeah yeah and I feel like though you were a history major your real major was the institute of politics (laughs) yeah that's Um, and that's what I meant actually was like they didn't um I was like I thought that I was doing it sort of for my parents to be like don't worry I'm going to graduate from this liberal arts place with employable skills Mm -hmm. because of the IOP and they didn't really care about the IOP (laughs) stuff And I was like, oh, I'm doing it for them. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm really doing it for my own. You went on to do a million things with um, the IOP. But maybe one of the things that I think is the most interesting is WPSP. Mm -hmm. And tell me about how that began. Yeah. So that sort of began because I became, at the end of that summer, at the end of the summer of 2013, my end of my first year summer, I became very um, disenchanted with the IOP. <laughs> um, one and year in, one sure. year in, as as people can become, and and not so much with the IOP. I use the IOP as many people do, like linguistically, mm-hmm. to represent a bunch of things institutionally, which is like the problem yeah. in itself that the IOP, when it was founded, was trying to work against and now has fallen into, which is. Um, the culture of DC and a culture of insiders and like um, how can people get trained to work in this in this society only if they're already a part of it and like um, and I was realizing like not like not only is DC and the IOP on like a micro level kind of a boys club but even if you had women in those boys clubs it was like a lean in phenomenon mm. lean in also sorry yeah lean in had come out at that time yeah and so all the conversations that we were having that summer we had a lot of career conversations with like successful people in DC were all super lean in so like take yourself back to like 2012 2013 feminism which just like look it up if you forget what that was like but it was nauseating and it's even more if you think about it now yeah um and um and so it was only if you knew how to play in a boys club and at the time the IOP's like only like fun thing that they did was like 
Sunday morning, like football and wings and just stuff like that. I don't have to keep going on, but you get it. So, plus people like didn't know how to get involved, like with IOP. Yeah. Or like what it was good for. Um, so a group from the Beijing State Department, I think that's right, the Beijing uh, Women's University, China Women's University, came to D.C. through the State Department and asked me slash the IOP to, like, um, host them in Chicago. They asked Dylan Ziegler, the IOP, like, Mm -hmm. to, like, plan an itinerary for them. And they were so lovely, and they had a totally different... These girls who were, like, whatever, my age to, like, 23 had just, like, a totally different idea of, like, how they operate in everything they do. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything is a lot more family-based, and there's just sort of an acceptance, some ways fortunate, some ways unfortunate, of, like, what an institution is and is going to be and, like, what their impact like could be and the limits it would the limits it has you know yeah like they're not they were not planning to change institutions which was in some ways very disheartening but also was like it led to really honest conversations that like we could have across across the countries sure you know yeah um they were some of the best conversations I had all summer just because they were finally like sort of radical conversations we were like oh wow you just aren't even planning on doing any of these things they were like no yeah (laughs) and we were like why and they were like well you're saying this from an extreme like point of privilege thinking like we can do this thing like we have all these other obligations we can't just like overthrow so such and such and then we also met with um we met with some like dissenters in their government and I don't know it was it was really nice. Yeah. And I was like, well, why doesn't the IOP have a space like this? Mm-hmm. Where it actually is a true range of opinions among women um, and our very honest conversations that are not only about, like, people already working in the institution. It's just, like, with young women, you yeah. know? So then I told them at the end of um, the summer that I would love to have one of these chapters called the Women in Service Project at... U Chicago, mm-hmm. and they were trying to expand their chapters. Um, and it was a Hillary Clinton initiative, it turned out, um, uh, started by the U.S. Secretary of State, like, depart- or started by the U.S. Department of State. Uh, and the goal was to have 50% representation of women in government by 2050. Mm-hmm. And um, that sounds pretty lofty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. I was like, well, if it like helps us like have a space in the IOP for these types of conversations that are really necessary and it gets like m- more young women who are not sure how to talk about these things mm-hmm. in the IOP's doors, then sure. Totally. So we raised money from the women's board. Um, we got a grant for $40,000. And then in April 2014, we had our first conversation of, like, 30 people. And it ended up being a really great conversation of, like, people just, like, yelling in the IOP about, like, all the sexist shit they've dealt with at that at the university. Yeah. And it was, like, 
just like also airing grievances about like since the IOP had started, like everything that's happened um, to them, like in individual programs, like naming names and being like, why was this panel all white men? Like these are the people that we want. And, and that was really nice. Um, And it didn't like, change the IOP forever, obviously. Sure. Um, But it is still a program that's going... But it is a program that is going. Yeah. And today it is... There is an institute that happens every winter, and Mara Hennigan um, really, like, made the program, like, what it is, which is, like, a workshop-oriented thing where the, the girls who are in WPSP, like, each take ownership of each week, and, like, plan either a skill that they want to work on, which it often ends up being, like, first and second year. So if people don't know how to, like, get in the IOP's doors or, like, just to meet the staff, which in and of itself is, like, one of the most valuable things people to meet, um, this is, like, one of the best ways. Absolutely. So skill to plan or, like, people to invite in. Like, we had Mariam Kaba. One of my, like, last years there, I was, like, I just want to, like, meet her and talk to her. And we had her in, and she just, like, just is so incredible. And everyone was just, like, sitting in a circle, like, in awe. And she just answered questions for hours and hours. And I was like, I love you so much. So it's just, like, a great way to talk with anyone you want to talk with. Absolutely. So So you were really involved in the IOP in college. And um, talk to me about... uh, graduating and figuring out what it is you wanted to do to kind of continue to work in Chicago or in like the public service field at large and how you ended up at the Invisible Institute. Yeah. So I thought I wanted to do communications in in politics and it's not like off the it's like not off my brain. I could still do that, I sure. think. But um I really wanted to expand what people were talking about in WPSP or, like, what counted as public service. Actually, as a mistake, I thought that public service, like, just meant service to the public, not, like, government service, yeah. like, government jobs. Um, and so it wasn't until, like, sometime in my second year or even third year that I was like, oh, I thought, like, I just was wrong, when, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so WPSP has always been about just, like, not trying to redefine the definition, but we just included, like, anything that people wanted to talk about sure. in in social service. Yeah. Um, not, I'm, and that's not to say that, like, private sector counts because people have tried that at WPSP, and I'm always like, mm, no, nope, nope, nope. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I've thought about that a lot in while doing that. So anyway, while thinking about that, yeah. I talked with Steve a bit about, like, I'm not sure exactly what to do. I think I want to do radio. Yeah. I did stuff for the Southside Weekly a bit while I was in college, which um, is a local independent newspaper run out of Woodlawn, and it serves the South Side of Chicago and is also written by the South Side of Chicago. Um, and I was like, do I want to do radio? Uh, that journalism work still feels like public service to me. Yeah. It um, is public service. Um, but the strategic stuff, like comm strategy, I still, like, want that. I'm actually not really a journalist. Like, I don't have that um, training. I don't think that'll... 
So Steve was like, you know, you should meet my friend Jamie Calvin. He, he's somebody that I think you would get along with, especially in light of the past two, the last two years of college. I, I didn't drift from, I did drift from the IOP, um, but not in a like, not in a shunning it sort of way and walking away from it, but like in a engaging with the leadership of it more. I had more conversations with Steve and David and telling them about the things that I disagreed with, um, encouraging friends who were upset with things that were happening, such as like the Anita Alvarez stuff to like write op-eds, um, to like be very vocal about the things that they did not like, um, because that was the only way to move it forward. So Steve was like, your commitment to social justice in an institutional setting and like to fighting institutions, I think Jamie would be great. So Jamie, if you don't know, he is a journalist. Um, his work is based out of, was originally based out of public housing. Um, and he long fought the city and CHA, Chicago Housing Authority, um, on the plan for transformation. Mm-hmm. This is sort of strange to say, but Jamie says that people appear in his life and like just float into the Invisible Institute and then they're mad, like they're perfectly placed to like do work. Yeah. Anyway, so I talked to Steve and Steve yeah. was like, Jamie, you should meet Myra. And so I met Jamie. But at the same time, I was also... Okay, so for me, it wasn't as magical as those people that met Jamie in a stairwell. Um, But I did work for the Southside Weekly for um, over a year developing the Southside Weekly radio podcast. Shout out Southside Weekly Radio. You should check it out. Um, It is running way better than when I ran it, to be honest. Um, um, But I, I was working on that. And Harry Backland, who is the publisher of the Southside Weekly, um, talked to me about some help he needed with accounting and, and stuff like that. And I don't really have an accounting background, but I was like, oh, yeah, I do f- I've do. i done fundraising for WPSP um, and working with other student groups on their fundraising. And so I would love to, like, talk about fundraising for the Invisible Institute. Yeah. So I came on with a very short contract and just did more and more work, and it turned into a longer contract, and then it ended up turning into a full-time scope. So we are a journalism production company based in Woodlawn, which is the south in the south side of Chicago. Um, it's a neighborhood in the south side of Chicago on 61st and Blackstone. Um, and journalism production means a lot of things. It means that we produce data tools, such as the Citizens Police Data Project. You can like go on CPDP. and type in a police officer's name and get their entire misconduct records and history. Um, We produce documentaries. We produce long-form journalism pieces and then publish them through other outlets like the Code of Silence and The Intercept. Um, We also work with journalists, kids, academics um, on long-form research that then informs litigation, academic papers. Etc. Yeah. So journalism production company is almost like an umbrella term to mm-hmm. to describe a collective yeah. of different people. And what is it that you specifically do? I do a lot of administration and fundraising as like 50 to 60% of my job. Um, and then the other 30 to 40, I'm sure I left some percentage 
in the in inside there for like the coffees yeah. and conversations <laughs> that I'm always having. Right, right. Um, because I work very closely with kids in Hyde Park Academy. Yeah. And that is called the Youth Police Project. And we work with juniors and seniors in Hyde Park Academy in their broadcast media class, making little documentaries, short films, role plays. And through that, we interview them about their policing experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that informs policy and litigation over time. Gotcha. Um, So outside, I guess, of the work that you are doing with the Invisible Institute, which I know is is more than just a job, it's almost like investing in the community that you're a part of and... Um, it is really important, though, to, like, take time for yourself. And we always ask questions about self-care. Oh. <laughs> You're like, wow. Oh. <laughs> that was such a wonderful way to describe my lifestyle, Meg. Thank you for... <laughs> You're the therapist. Sorry, Kate. Yes. This is you're the therapist that I've always needed. <laughs> but we always we always ask our guests what makes them happiest and how they make time for it in their life. That question I'm gonna have to like rephrase because my kid like my kids and the students at Hyde Park actually yeah. do make me the happiest. Really there's happy. really there's really nothing more than them. We went on a trip with them to DC and on the way we stopped in my childhood home in Murraysville. And they had never been to a suburb like that before. And I took them into Pittsburgh. um, And we went to Pamela's. And they, like, I don't think I've ever been happier in my entire life. Wow. Now, is this, does this say anything about you wanting to work with kids in the future? Yes, it says a lot. I I really want to do education policy work. But if anyone listening, like, cares about education policy, you know that it is one of the most messed up fields that exists right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Especially, well, perhaps not for everyone, but for me and my politics, the current trend of education policy, like Betsy, et cetera, like I don't want to work in the formal field of education policy. I think education writing is something that I would do. Mm -hmm. I love kids. I love teachers. Um, I think I've hit a really unique sweet spot of getting to be fully immersed in a classroom once a week and immersed in the lives of students where they like get to still be with me after they graduate in this like difficult transition stage, especially if they're not college bound. Right. So I like it. Um, I think I'll always try to find a way. Do you have a vision for what your dream job is? Something very close to what I'm doing now. Yeah. Something very close. Probably a little more education-oriented. Yeah. Um, Right now, we're trying to fix... Well, we're not trying to fix policing. Um, We work on a lot of gender violence stuff as well. Um, We work very hard on police accountability. Um, Some people, I've heard, be like, they work to hold the CPD accountable. That's not all we do. Mm But it is a big part of what we do. It's a huge part. Um, If we could, like, work to fix CPS, that would probably be my dream job. Right, And I don't even know if it's possible, but I think it will take many more years for me of learning before I would be ready for that job. Yeah. Yeah. For me, this this feels like a big learning job for me. I want to also ask a question that's totally not Mm -hmm. work-related. We always ask our guests... What was the last thing that you binged? Oh, yeah. A podcast, 
a TV show, mm-hmm. a book, mm-hmm. um, food, like anything in your life that you totally obsessed over and like couldn't stop thinking or talking about. This is disgusting, like <laughs> cookies and cream candy bars. I grew up really loving them. I don't think I've ever had one, to be totally honest, which is such a... Okay, they're really good in like tiny doses. Yeah. Like if someone gives you half a cookies and cream bar... Perfect. If you have a full cookies and cream bar, you might have like a little headache, but they're so good. They're delicious. I love them. They're like marble. Okay. The last question I want to ask is, um, do you have any resources that you want to share? So this is like a pretty open-ended question. Um, you can talk about the Invisible Institute if there's like a project you want people to know about or in general, just Mm -hmm. something that you find really helpful. This could also be like a book or article. Yeah. For resources, I want people to know about the Citizens Police Data Project. It's called cpdp.co, but you can also just Google Citizens Police Data Project. It's just a good digital archive to know about for anyone that has any um, police encounters. And it's not, um, it's not like anti-police. It's just that it's like a collection of all public misconduct records, um, which are really hard to access um, as a citizen, but it's a really accessible way to just look up any history of complaint against any police officer. Um, and then for other resources, um, yeah, the Invisible Institute is a resource. Mm-hmm. Please reach out to us if if there is some like abuse that happens, particularly around policing right now. Um, but we are also investigating gender violence reach out to me, Myra at Invisible Institute. My name's spelled M-A-I-R-A. Um, yeah, you should come by the Experimental Station. The Experimental yeah. Station's a great resource of community. Yeah. Um, the Farmer's Market is every Saturday from 9 to 2 a, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Yeah, I think that's it. Those are great. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me today. It was so lovely to hear about your work and growing up in... video series She's the Boss by Madame Noir. She's the Boss captures the business savvy style and spirit of New York City's most successful black businesswomen. Check out interviews with Hollywood legend Debbie Allen, Ariel Johnson, the first black female to open a comic book shop in Philly, Zim, the founder of Travel Noir, and many more. Watch the series at video.madamenoir.com and on YouTube. My resource this week is inspired by our guest, Myra Kwaja. It is the Southside Weekly. So the Southside Weekly is an American alternative weekly newspaper based in Hyde Park that covers arts, culture, and politics all on the south side of Chicago. The paper is produced by an all-volunteer editorial staff, and Myra used to work there. So definitely check them out. You can find them at southsideweekly.com or on social media at Southside Weekly. You've been listening to The Brink of Impact, created by Chelsea Lowe, Maggie Stoller, and Rachel Whaley. Subscribe to The Brink of Impact on Apple Podcasts for new episodes every Monday. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Brink of Impact and sign up for our email newsletter, which includes links to all the great resources we share. Our music is Rise and Shine by Audio Binger. Thanks to our season two sponsor, Coalition Impact. 
Coalition is a brand of co-working spaces in New York, Boston, and Chicago. They are constantly looking for individuals and companies striving to make the world a better place to join their community. Check them out at coalitionimpact.com. Thanks for listening.